0: Hi, I'm Cody Stevens from Magnolia, Texas. I'm a video game developer and the director of a nonprofit. Listening to so many people's stories has very much instilled a deeper appreciation for God's perfect timing and the importance of having an eternal perspective. I hope God uses today's episode to touch your heart.
1: And about 4.30 in the morning, we got a call from the doctor and he said the x-ray was done, things were worse, you need to get here quickly. We don't know if there's anything else we can do for him.
0: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to season four of Compelled a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. Last week, our guest was Hormoz Sharit, who once chanted death to America in the streets of Tehran. But after doubts crept into his heart about Islam, he was forced to reckon with what he truly believed about God. His conclusions and the next 40 years of his life would eventually lead the Iranian government to branding him as an enemy of the state. You can hear that story by tuning into last week's episode with Hormuz Shariat. This week, our guest is Kathleen Lansing. After Kathleen's two year old son fell suddenly ill and was on death's door, she cried out to God asking for healing. But his condition only worsened, and Kathleen feared the worst. Only a miracle from God could save her son. So lean in and join us for another compelling story from the Kingdom of God. Back in June, I interviewed Kathleen during a trip through Virginia. She and her husband, George, have a beautiful home tucked away in the forest just north of Richmond. Their home looks like something straight out of Southern Living Magazine. Wooden floors, bright windows, and a brick kitchen. And in many ways, it reminded me of what perhaps Kathleen's childhood may have looked like in the heart of the Deep South.
1: I was born in Laurel, Mississippi. My parents were both saved, and my brother and my sister and I were trained in the lord and went to church every week with my parents. We were pretty much a beaver cleaver family. We had to look right and do everything right and and we knew exactly how to do that. Mm. And unfortunately, I accepted Christ as my savior I think more for the reason of doing it because it was the right age, but I really wanted to do the right thing. And I knew how to follow all the rules. I think I was probably a really good Pharisee. I knew how to follow all the rules and play all the games of uh, religiosity. Yeah, And I thought that I was saved, but when I got to be an older teenager, I really got tired of playing the game of the religion.
0: When Kathleen stopped playing the religion game, there was a certain sense of freedom. She stopped going to church, but still wanted to be a good girl. Not because she wanted to obey God, but because that's how good people behaved. Most of the rebellion was in her heart, and by the time she entered college at the University of Southern Mississippi, anyone looking from the outside wouldn't have noticed a difference. That's where she met her future husband, George, during her sophomore year on an outing with some friends. We were just friends.
1: And I remember the first night that I ever met him, just being myself, probably exactly the way I am right now. I was just, you know, talking to him, trying to make him feel welcome. I was in the front seat of the car, he was in the back, I was asking him a lot of questions. And he looked at me and he said, you really like yourself, don't you? Wow! I said, I've never, thought about that. I don't I don't really know, but he was always asking these difficult probing questions and I didn't feel like a prideful person and he said to me, "Are you Christian?" And nobody had ever asked me that question before. Why would someone ask me if I was Christian? It wasn't it obvious I was a good girl? Yeah. I said, no, I'm Baptist. And everybody around me laughed. Yeah. But it was really the truth. Yeah. I put more connection and ownership to a religion that I had been part of than my faith. Wow. In my Lord that I really didn't have a relationship with. That night, after Georgia asked me that question, he said, "I'll I'll walk you to your dorm. I trusted George at that point. I knew he was a Christian. So I thought, okay, I'll let him walk me to my dorm. So as we walked, I think that there was probably a, a little bit more personal conversation going on because it was just the two of us. Yeah. He sensed there was something deep that I needed. And he specifically asked me, would you, would you let me pray for you right hmm. now? that just blew my mind. I know people do that a lot now. But in the 70s, we lived in a very Christian-esque culture. Everybody was kind of assumed to be Christian. And the Christian walk was not necessarily deep. It was very culturally Christian, but it wasn't necessarily deep. Yeah. And so the idea that that you would stop and pray with someone, that was a foreign thing. And I was raised in the church, and nobody ever—unless it was a pastor or a deacon—that was okay. But Joe Blow or a friend, that just didn't happen. He sat down and prayed for me specifically. No one had ever done that, but he sat down on a bench outside of the library that night, and he brought things up in the prayer that there's no way he could have possibly known. The questions that I had in my mind and the, the lack of peace that I had in my heart. I think he said something about running from the truth, and that's exactly what I was doing. I was running from the truth of who God was, and I know that the Holy Spirit gave him the words that he needed to say that pulled the veil off of my eyes and made me realize I had been running from Jesus for Two or three years, and I just needed to come back. And my life has never been the same again. I know that I know that I know that moment I was saved.
0: From that moment on, Kathleen's faith became her own and not the product of the culture or her family. She stopped running away from God and began to grow. And after that first night, when they met each other, she and George became good friends and eventually began dating. They got married, and Kathleen finished her nursing degree the following year while George completed his MBA shortly after. Their first son, Ben, was born in 1983, and by the time he was two years old, life was going great.
1: I had never been somebody who had always dreamed of having children. Hmm. But, oh my goodness, it was like the world opened up to me, Hmm. and the life of this child that God had given to us, there was a different kind of love that I had ever known. Hmm. Um, Protective, mothering, nurturing, all these things. And the combination of the fact that it was George and me, and this was a God thing that he gave to us. And it was just the most magnificent, exciting period of our lives as we, walked through this new thing of parenting. Yeah, And so life was very busy during that time. I started working at St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond on the pediatrics floor. Mm. And we had started a new daycare center and we were taking Ben to the daycare center. George was picking him up two hours later. And within two weeks after we had started using that daycare center, uh, I got a phone call from the head of the daycare center that there was a little girl in Ben's classroom that had come down with bacterial meningitis. Bacterial meningitis is very, very dangerous because it's it's a bacteria that lands in your meninges, which is within your spinal column, and it's a direct flow to your brain. Mm. So the infection was going from the spinal column all the way up to her brain, and it can cause death, it can cause brain damage, it can cause all sorts of problems. And it was a very severe form of bacterial meningitis. And so she was giving everybody a heads up that we need to watch our children. I reconciled the fact that Ben had only been in the classroom with her just for two hours, and I just decided I would just be praying for this little girl. She was at a different hospital from me. It was a hospital that you take your child to when they're severely sick.
0: Now, just before Kathleen started praying for Ben's sick classmate, she and George had joined a Bible study, which, unbeknownst to them, was actually one of the ways that God was preparing them for the trial ahead.
1: The summer of 1985, we had started going to this Bible study on spiritual warfare, Mm. but it put it into context. Of yes, there is an enemy. Yes, the enemy is out to kill, steal, and destroy. But we serve a God who is all authority and all power. And if you put your trust and your faith in him and you put on the full armor of God, that he is there. The battle belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. And we might be fighting something in the world in, in this flesh. But God is going to take us through this. When we were taking this Bible study, the leader called me up that day and said, you know, we're getting ready to have our anniversary and we just really feel like we need to just get away for the night. Are you free? Could you just take care of our baby overnight? And it actually was perfect because George was out of town that night. We lived in a tiny little home. It was 900 square feet, two bedrooms. Ben's bedroom had a crib in it. He was getting ready to graduate to a big boy bed, but he he had that crib. And then the other bedroom was our bedroom. And I said, "You know, that would really work out perfect. I w- I'd be glad to babysit your 4-month-old baby while you're away for the night." So, they brought him over. We had a wonderful evening. We played with the baby. I got the baby to bed in the crib, and Ben, who's two at this time, we put Ben in our bed. Because George was out of town, there was plenty room for Ben to sleep in the bed with me. Everything seemed perfect. Like textbook, this is a great evening. But at two o'clock in the morning, I was awakened to some very loud, raspy, struggled breathing from Ben. I knew enough to know that it sounded sort of like croup, a little bit like croup if you're familiar with that. It's a, a very scary sound in a child. But what they need is they they need to have humidified air and warm if possible, warm humidified air to open up their airways. Yeah. And so I picked him up, it was about two o'clock in the morning. Uh, we didn't have a humidifier in the house. And uh, we didn't have a a heated vaporizer in the house, but I did have a washing machine. And the washing machine, if I turned it on hot, the hot water steam would rise very quickly. And so I ran him to the washing machine, I lifted the lid and we got the hot water going so the steam was rising quickly. And I leaned us both over the washing machine and he didn't get better. In fact, he was getting worse quickly. And I knew that if I didn't get him to the hospital, that I was gonna lose him. I am pretty sure by this type of bacteria, and as fast as it moves, that he may have suffocated to death that night if he had been in his own bed. A lot of things happened in the meantime, but by the time we got him to the hospital, we ended up at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and he ended up in the intensive care unit on the same unit that this little girl was on.
0: Oh, wow. He
1: had to be put in a private room because of the type of infection it was. It was extremely contagious. And they had to, to trach him and was only able to fit the size of a premature trach tube down him. That's how little air space he still had left oh, in wow. his throat.
0: Oh, wow.
1: He couldn't have lost too much more airway before there would have been nothing they could have done. They had to put him on a respirator. And in order to do that, that's a machine that will push at a certain pressure, push oxygen by force into your lungs. In order to do that, they had to paralyze Ben mechanically. And so they put him on medications for that. They also put him on doses of morphine and Valium so that he stayed in somewhat of a semi-comatose state.
0: Now, because Kathleen had been a pediatric nurse at this point for five years, she understood how dire the situation was. But soon it would worsen. More on that After the break. There's a current events newsletter that I've been reading for the past year called The Pour Over. It's a short and concise summary of the news that drops in your inbox three times a week with reminders and verses to keep believers focused on eternity and not the chaos in Washington, D.C. or on Wall Street. Their writing is clever, humorous, and mercifully brief, something that a busy person like myself really appreciates. I can read through the day's biggest headlines and also be reminded of a Christian perspective on current events. I'm not even sure how I found their newsletter, but I'm glad that I did. It's something that I look forward to reading every morning that it comes. Oh, and did I mention that it's free? That's right. No cost, no strings attached. It's just free. So head on over to theporeover.org compelled and sign up for their free newsletter, or get their news on their new podcast by searching for The Pour Over on your favorite podcast app. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18, and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at Worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Welcome back to COMPELLED. We've been listening to Kathleen Lansing share about her two-year-old son, Ben, who was rapidly attacked by bacterial meningitis and hospitalized. He was sedated and intubated on a ventilator. As a pediatric nurse, Kathleen had seen children in this exact same condition before and knew what this could mean.
1: I was terrified. I could not imagine how something could happen so quickly, but I also felt very guilty because of that twinge that I had about, oh, I don't feel right about taking in this take care center. But I really, you know, I had pushed that aside and I just really felt like that I could have done more, you know, to prevent that. What made it worse was the policy in that intensive care unit was that the parents could not be with the children. They could only come in twice a day for about 15 minutes a day. And even though the staff told me that he was semi-comatose, that he was paralyzed and he wasn't capable of understanding anything that was going on and that I should not worry. I knew that he could understand things because he was also hooked up to heart monitors and and all sorts of things. And the moment that George or I would walk in the door, his heart rate would just pick right up Hmm. and it would go up from maybe about 100 to 160. Wow. Just like that.
0: So obviously, knew you guys were there. No doubt
1: in my mind. My little boy knew that mommy and daddy were there, and he also knew when mommy and daddy were not there. With that little bit of information, we just started doing things like recording books that we knew that he loved, and with our own voices, and playing them, and asking the nurses, "Please play this while we're gone." Each day, they would take an X-ray, and they would, you know, get all sorts of lab work, and each day. Even though he was on antibiotics and they were really working diligently, it was a great staff. He was getting worse mm, every day. Really? He was getting worse. And we had been there for six days and I I couldn't leave. I couldn't go home. There was a, a waiting room right outside of the intensive care unit for babies or children. I stayed in that waiting room. It had straight back chairs. There was there was nothing to recline in. But that's where I stayed and I I never went home. I couldn't eat. I could barely sleep a little bit, sitting straight up on a straight back chair. I was distraught. I prayed a lot. I was very, very aware and remembering that God is in control. God is in authority. God is good all the time, even if I lose my little boy. Yeah. There's a reason behind why we're going through this. I will tell you though, that in the middle of my distraught, I mean, I was distraught. I was so connected to my little boy. Yeah. I frequently, when I would pray, I didn't feel God's presence, but that doesn't mean God wasn't there. It was what I was feeling. You know, it was what I wasn't feeling. It doesn't mean he wasn't there. I knew he was. So I just made the decision to continue praying through that, even in the midst of my lack of feeling his presence. Your sense of ability to feel whether God is near or not is really not always the most important thing. Because he's, he's there. He's here. He's here. He's with us. And he's all authority, he's all power, and he's all good.
0: I don't want to gloss over this point. Kathleen said that even in the moments when God didn't feel near, she knew that he still was because he tells us in the word. Our feelings and emotions don't define who God is, God does. God is the one who says who he is. And either we believe him and what he's written in the Bible about himself, or we don't. Psalm 34 18 famously says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, which is exactly what Kathleen needed.
1: The nurse had taken him back from x ray, and she said, I have some really bad news. Uh, His x ray is worse than it has been. He's on his third series of different antibiotics that are not working. Um, We suggest that you. Get out, and go for a walk. We hadn't even gone for a walk; um, we had just been staying there, and it had been six days. And we just said, "Yeah, that's that sounds like a really good idea. Let's get out of here for a little bit." And we we walked out into the streets of Broad Street um, of of Richmond, and I remember walking in front of this beautiful department store. It was called Miller and Rhodes. It was a very elegant department store, and people were hustling and bustling beside us, and we, we just were walking and praying and crying out to God. Maybe you might see something like that now, but never saw people praying out loud in the 80s. That just, it didn't happen. And we were—we didn't care. We were doing what we needed to do right then. We were crying out to our Abba Father, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to my son? Why would you give me a son that I could love so fully? Why would you take him away from me? And George stopped and he took me by the shoulders and he said, Kathleen, don't you understand? Ben is not our own. Ben has always belonged to God. We are just his stewards. You've got to let him go because you really don't have any control. This is all under God. And... For the first time ever since I had been a parent, I just, the, it's just like the veil had been ripped between me and God. The veil had been ripped from my eyes. I finally, for the first time, understood that I really wasn't in control of this. I was merely just a steward. Um. And as much as I didn't want to do it, I did not want to give my baby up to to God. I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had no choice. And I got down on my knees on Broad Street, in front of this elegant department store, on the sidewalk. And I literally—I remember literally—handing God my son. And the veil was taken away at that moment. There was, there was such a joy uh, in the midst of the deep sorrow. And I knew that what I had done was what I needed to do. And it was just so important that I acknowledge that God is the one in complete authority. It was true It was true, it was true, and I needed to acknowledge that. It was just where my heart needed to be, uh, to be able to take the next step, no matter what direction it was. We got back to the hospital, and the nurse met us there, and she just said, um, his x-rays, were worse, the one lung was completely collapsed. And this was with a ventilator with pressure pushing oxygen into both of his lungs for six days on different antibiotics. One lung was completely collapsed. And she said, you guys are just exhausted. There's nothing else we can do right now anyway. Why don't you go home tonight? We will let you know if there's anything that you need to be back here for. There's gonna be another x-ray at four o'clock in the morning, we'll know more information, we'll be able to share with you then." So we agreed to do that. For the first time in six days, we went home, we slept, and about 4.30 in the morning, we got a call from the doctor. And he said, the x-ray was done, things were worse, you need to get here quickly. Hmm. We don't know if there's anything else we can do for him. And so we rushed back to the hospital. It was about a 30 minute drive. We ran upstairs and it wasn't visiting hours. You had to keep those special visiting hours, you know, 15 minute things, but they let us in. I think it was to say goodbye uh, and just to spend a little bit more time with him. We walked in and immediately we put our hands on Ben's chest and we began to pray desperately, desperately that God would heal our son. And we had been doing that all along. It it wasn't, we, we had been praying for him and singing praise songs to him. So this was just no different than before, except there was a different cry of desperation that we hadn't had before. And as soon as we started doing that, I've never seen anything like this before, but his chest, His body started jerking off of the bed with the core of the jerk being in his chest. It was jerking like that. I thought it was a convulsion, which frequently will happen right before somebody dies. Bells and whistles started going off. The nurses all started running in. Doctors were running in. They pulled a crash cart in and they pushed us out and pulled the blinds closed so that we couldn't tell what was going on. I knew that they were calling a code and that he was dying. They had their monitors outside of the room at the nurse's station and they could tell what was going on with his monitors to know that this child was at the end. There was nothing we could do. They had the door locked. We couldn't get in. They weren't going out. And for several minutes, we just stood there and prayed, kind of in shock, kind of, desperate and needy of God and just asking for strength. Seven, eight minutes went by and all of a sudden people started leaving the room, not saying a word, not making eye contact with us at all. And then we happened to notice that there was this little gap in the blinds that they had closed. Just a little bitty gap, and George and I were like, what's going on? So we peeked in the windows, and what we saw was two physicians. They both had their stethoscopes on, and they were both were standing over Ben with their stethoscopes on his chest, and they were smiling. And they were just smiling. And I thought to myself, how? Old can a doctor be to be pronouncing someone dead and he's smiling. I mean, that's that's horrible. And I was just horrified. And then they started laughing. And I thought, no, there's something, something's happened. Something's good happening here. And it wasn't too much longer that one of the doctors came out and they said, we don't know what's going on because we just had the x-ray at 4.30 in the morning and one lung was completely deflated. It had collapsed. The other lung had one lobe completely deflated and the other one was partially collapsed. And so that's why we called you in. We couldn't increase the pressure on the ventilator anymore and we knew that he was so much worse than he had been just 12 hours earlier. He said, we don't understand this. It's just been about 45 minutes since the x-ray was read, but he's breathing on his own. And as we're listening, we don't hear any pneumonia. There's no congestion in there. And he said, we don't don't know how to explain this except for maybe a miracle has just happened. They did another x-ray right away, both lungs completely expanded, wow. no pneumonia, Wow. no pneumonia. Wow. We were just praising God and so, so out of our mind with excitement. Oh, it just <laughs> was an answer to prayer, but truly we knew that no matter what the outcome was and we were bracing ourselves for the worst, that God was walking with us every single step of that way. He was there with us and he understood, God the Father understood the heartache and the desperation that we were feeling because he witnessed his own son being hurt, damaged, beaten. All that pain that we knew that all of our friends who were trying to be compassionate, they were trying to be compassionate but they couldn't possibly understand, God the Father did. after he had his x-ray and it was confirmed this child had no congestion in his lungs at all both lungs were completely expanded he was given the green light he did not need to be on a ventilator anymore and there was a whole chain of medical students and residents and doctors who were just coming into this room taking a look at this kid because they had seen the time date on the x-ray of four thirty in the morning, the x-rays red, six o'clock in the morning, a new x-rays red. They're completely different. I mean completely different. One with collapsed lung totally, the other one with mostly a collapsed lung on the other side, and then all of a sudden a completely re expanded, no infiltrate in the lung, a healthy looking set of lungs. So this doctor, I think he's a resident, he comes in, he hadn't been directly involved with Ben's care, but he had been aware of things that were going on and how badly he was uh, dealing with the antibiotics. And he looks at his chart, he looks at the x-rays, he scratches his head, he goes and he looks at Ben's, his, his wristband, his name tag, to make sure it's the same kid. And he goes, Wow. He really is doing better. And, and many people came through that said, there's no explanation. This has just got to be a miracle.
0: Ben, the two-year-old boy who should have died, was alive. The doctors, nurses, and medical community were stunned. There was no other explanation. He was a living miracle an undeserved kindness from an ever-loving father.
1: Ben became quite a behavioral problem in that room. They took him out quickly because he wanted out, he wanted with his mom and dad right away. They had him off the ventilator within hours and tried to keep him in that isolation room because they thought certainly he still has, you know, this bacteria raging in his body, but everything was coming back normal. Everything wow. was coming back normal. So they they moved into a downgraded room and within... Thirty-six, forty-eight hours, they had him discharged. Wow. He was done. Our only challenge from that part was just weaning him off of the Valium and morphine that he had constantly during that point. We were discharged after two days of being given the very worst possible report from our from the doctor, having been lung collapsed on one side, the other side being mostly collapsed. Um, so he was discharged and all we had to work with was six weeks of getting him off of the morphine and the Valium. And for the most part, you know, that went pretty well. He really dealt with a lot of issues with fear and trust after he got home. And I think that's because he spent so much time without his mom and dad there. And, and I'm sure even though the morphine and Valium had him confused, he still knew that this wasn't normal. And I don't understand why mom and dad aren't here to help. Yeah. So we worked with a lot of routines and things like that just to to get things back to normal. And within about six weeks, George and I felt like that, you know, he was probably pretty much on full steam ahead. We were really happy with how he had recuperated at home. This was probably the hardest year of our lives. It was so hard. The tribulations were extremely difficult, but God was so faithful through it. He is the part of the happy endings, and he's also the part of the sad endings. Mm. All endings don't turn up to be happy endings. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I was kind of raised and, and became a very independent minded person. And, and I had been always been taught to be very strong. And there's some things that human strength just cannot, you can't handle any human strength. And this was one of those things with the thought of losing my child. That was more than I could humanly handle. So this experience really changed my life forever. Mm. I knew that It was more than just God loves me and I have, we have a wonderful plan for our life. (laughs) I handed over that plan and I knew that God's plan was so much better because he's so much wiser, he's so much bigger, and he's always good. I'm not always good and I'm not always wise. So that trust and my faith in the Lord just just exploded. But the, the bottom line is, is that God never changes. He's always faithful. He's always good.
0: Well, Kathleen, I appreciate you coming and sharing your story. These are very, very powerful stories. I'm so grateful that you did that.
1: Thank you. I was so glad to do it. All right. To God be the glory.
0: I don't know about you, but I was on the edge of my seat during Kathleen's story. When we recorded her interview, I had chills going up and down my arms. Just such a powerful manifestation of God's power and goodness. You know, today's story reminds me a lot about Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah if that's what God required. And something that really struck me about Kathleen's story is that God didn't heal Ben until after Kathleen fully submitted her son's life over to the Lord. God could have healed Ben at any point days earlier, but he chose to wait until the moment that would glorify himself the most. You know, not every story ends on earth the way that we hope it would, but sometimes they do. And you know, Ben's story doesn't end there. Today, he is 38 years old, happily married, and he's a professional cartoonist and writes for a nationally syndicated cartoon strip called Shoe, which I'm sure you've come across at one point or another. And believe it or not, in 2008, Ben was actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for one of his cartoons after the Virginia Tech massacre. You can see that strip and others at his website, benlansing.com. Also, he has a really cool side project illustrating scenes from early church history we'll include links to all of that and more on our website compelledpodcast.com just look for the show notes to this episode also we'll include some behind the scenes photos of kathleen george their family and more again you can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com finally if you need a podcast player on your cell phone then i would suggest castbox it's super easy to use and lets you download episodes to listen to ahead of time for when you're offline You can download CastBox from Google Play for Android or from the App Store for iPhone. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler and Will Jackson. Our media assistant is Ethan Adams, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to my friend Gabriel LaFont for filming this interview. If you know someone else with an incredible story of how God has worked in their life, please let us know. We're always looking for other great stories to share on Compelled. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story, this time from our behind-the-scenes interviews next Tuesday. See you soon. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.